Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, July 18th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show, if you don't already, on iTunes, Stitcher, Swell, or any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. They have over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, and many other topics. The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on old-fashioned DVDs and CDs. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of its courses, this one taught by a previous Inquiring Minds guest, Professor Stephen Novella. It's called Your Deceptive Mind. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. So, Indre, like good nerds, we talk about Game of Thrones a lot on this show, <laughs> but we've never had an actual novelist or fiction author as our primary guest. So today that changes, although we're you know sort of taking baby steps into this area. Uh, one of let me let me give you some background here. Let me back up. One of our most important writing duos on the subject of climate change is Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway, two historians. And what they've done is they've now turned to writing science fiction in a new book that attempts to make us really pay attention to the problem. And many listeners will recall that their prior book was really very influential. It came out in 2010. It was called Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming. Very influential book. Uh, and as an author myself, let me just say that sequels are hard. So how do you follow that up? There's a temptation to just write something just like the original and hope it'll do like half as well at least. And then there's this temptation to strike completely out into new terrain. Well, that's what they've done. They have opted hard for new terrain and they have written a short work of what is called cli-fi or climate science fiction. It's entitled The Collapse of Western Civilization, A View from the Future. And in it, some 400 years from now, a historian in China is writing about how we did ourselves in. (laughs) And so, of course, I wanted to get Naomi Oreskes on the show to talk about this. And one of the first things I asked was, you know, you're an academic historian. How did you end up opting for sci-fi? So let's hear her answer. 
Well, we didn't set out to write science fiction, and I have to say it came as a surprise to me too, although maybe not as much to Eric since he's a big science fiction fan. But mainly it came out of a conversation that Eric and I were having where we felt like in writing Merchants of Doubt, we had plowed through thousands and thousands of pages of scientific reports, scientific articles, peer-reviewed journal, you know, peer-reviewed journal articles, and we felt like we really understood the science, but we also felt that the scientific community had really not explained why any of this mattered. And we just kept coming back to this idea of how do we, how do we really talk about why this matters and not just for polar bears and not just for people, you know, living in far-flung places or far into the future, but, but what's really at stake? So what do you think of that? I mean, I think we know that sometimes narratives move us the way that nothing else can. Yeah, I think she's actually come up to something really important, which is that in order to write great science fiction, you have to become an expert in the science. I mean, that's what's so compelling about great science fiction is that we actually learn something. And when the science is compelling and true, that draws us into the story that much more deeply. Um, And of course, as you said, we know that stories can influence us more than statistics when it comes to our behavior, which I think is really what they're getting at. You know, we, we might know that the climate is changing, but we're not doing anything about it. And so, you know, some of my favorite um, uh, studies of, of how, you know, we are influenced by stories come from studies of women who have to get mammograms, right? And it turns out that, you know, if you give a woman the statistics about mammograms, you know, she'll say, yes, the statistics are more compelling than just someone's anecdote about how they went and got a mammogram and it saved them from, you know, dying of, of breast cancer. But, Watching a video and having that narrative actually changes the behavior um, more often than simply giving people a list of facts. Mm-hmm. And it's just bracing. I mean, we'll, you'll hear the interview, but it's just bracing to step out of the present and think about a historian 400 years from now, which there certainly will be. I don't know if they'll be in China. I don't know exactly what they'll be saying. But to think that they would just have such condemnation for us is kind of a shock. Well, I hope there is a historian <laughs> 400 years from now. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's the interview for today. But first, some stuff that's on our desk, on our notepads, you know, on our post-it notes that we wanted to bring up with you this week. And Indra, I'll let you, let you start. Yeah. So apparently in some parts of the country, it's summertime. Um, it's yeah. not here in San Francisco. <laughs> it's the, the midst of our winter. But um, recently, this horrible article from what I think is primarily just a pro-cannabis website called Real Pharmacy, that's with an F, dot com. Don't read it, but okay. <laughs> um, is making the rounds on Facebook. So, you know, in a couple of feeds from some of my friends who are otherwise, you know, learned, intelligent individuals, they... they um, linked this article, which the title was something like "Scientists Bust the Myth That Sun Exposure Causes Skin Cancer." I'm I'm probably butchering it, but you know it's something right. like that. I can't bring myself to actually read it again. God. And so it, you know it triggered my igni- indignant "You've got to be kidding" reaction, right? And you know flared up my whole uh, you know yeah indignant scientist uh, stuff. So. Of course, the study itself is misinterpreted in the article, and even this, the original study is, is fairly flawed. So essentially, the finding was that in some Nordic country where there's not a lot of sun for a lot of the year, there was a slight increase in death rates among people who avoided the sun and used excessive sunscreen. And yes, it is true that we as humans need vitamin D, but unless you live above the Arctic Circle and are essentially in the dark for much of the year, you're unlikely to suffer from a life-threatening vitamin D deficiency because you're not getting enough sun. So Most certainly, though, the relationship between skin cancer and sun exposure, specifically sunburns, is very well established. Um, But as I read the reactions, I also came across this whole other 
world of pseudoscience. It was a total surprise to me. And this is oral sunscreen. I didn't know this little underworld existed either. There's there seems to be a war on sunscreen out there, and it's <laughs> it's coming from alternative medicine. Who knew? But I mean, yeah, I mean, apparently it's it's a major problem to put on liquid sunscreen on your skin. Uh, that 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 is a hardship. Apparently, yeah, they call it an endocrine disruptor, <laughs> and they call it anyway. Go ahead. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so it turns out that there are alternatives uh, to. To putting sunscreen on your skin, there is drinkable sunscreen, um, which of course makes me laugh because any sunscreen is drinkable. I just wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) I mean, it is liquid after all, uh, but it's probably not great if you drink it. Um, But in any case, there are sort of a couple other uh, articles that came out about this. uh, Drinkable sunscreen is something like something water, H2O, something like that. Um, and there's a really wonderful Guardian article that we should link to in, um, you know, from our Inquiring Minds page because it's just brilliantly written. Uh, so, Chris, I'll let you tell us a little bit about that article. Well, no, it's just it was just taking <laughs> apart. It sounds like it sounds like this is a homeopathic sunscreen. Is that your understanding? Too? Yeah. So that the one that yeah. So the one that the Guardian the Guardian article is railing against, uh, and there is an article in the Telegraph and the Daily Mail. They all talk about this this homeopathic sunscreen, which is, does not actually have the word homeopathy in it, um, but essentially mm-hmm. it seems to you know cause your well, you drink water. some water <laughs> and you yeah. you know causes some kind of vibration of some kind of molecules, and it sounds mm-hmm. super hokey. Um, yeah. And the Guardian article is great, right? So mm-hmm. you know, there's takes this, it this, apart. Yeah, there's this, and, and you know, it's just it's filled with funny quotes like you know, if science communicators were Jedi, this product would be like the destruction of Alderaan. Right. Yeah. Total. <laughs> um, total fail. And I, so I I made the mistake of googling the phrase homeopathic sunscreen, and I was in for a world of hurt. But I will just say <laughs> that I went to the homepage. One one something credible. Um, the National Institutes of Health have this National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, which many skeptics, including Dr. Stephen Novella, are not very high on the fact that they have this office. But uh, they say it's way too soft on this stuff, but it's not soft on homeopathy, right? And right. this is the NIH. I would hope they wouldn't be. And it says the following. Several key concepts of homeopathy are inconsistent with fundamental concepts of chemistry and physics. Yeah, and that's probably why this particular company is not outright saying it's homeopathic. Instead, they're, you know, trying to use all the pseudoscience of vibrating. <laughs> it just always cracks me up. Um, but there is a whole other line of products that are oral sunscreens that are not based on homeopathy that I also came across. And this is, you know, products uh, with names like HelioCare or Fern Block or Sun Pill. And it turns out that these particular products contain extracts of a cabbage palm fern, a native plant to Central America, called the Polypodium leucotomus. Oh, nice. And yeah, so, um, you know, like, like many plants, it has some cool ingredients, including, uh, what seems to be in the, the root stock. Uh, and, and, uh, some of these ingredients are compounds that may produce antioxidant effects. Um, and of course, there's some suggestion, there's some evidence, of course, that, um, that these chemicals may reduce the oxidative damage that's caused by the sun. Uh, and so, and in fact, in a couple of animal models, they looked at simulated UV radiation and the consequences, which can include, you know, inflammation and irritation. That's the redness from a sunburn, et cetera. It's essentially. Um, and it turns out that some of these, you know, taking, you know, having some of the ingested, some of these compounds might protect against some of these effects. Um, now the data are, are very, very, uh, 
you know, we're very short on, on, on effects on humans and whether this actually might work. And, um, it seems like, you know, either it might slightly reduce the severity of a sunburn if you, you know, take these pills. Um, and in fact, one of the researchers that has looked at this particular compound suggests that maybe it offers an SPF of about three. Hmm. <laughs> uh, so again, it's insufficient for people that actually need sunscreen, which is all of us, <laughs> essentially, um, to protect yourself from the sun. So uh, don't rely on drinkable sunscreens or any sunscreen that you need to take in pill form for your entire protection. Okay, so these at least have an active ingredient. They they could do something, but you still you still have to wonder about the strategy. I mean, you know, if you're dealing with a problem uh, like the sun, you you really have to wonder about why you would try any other option than covering the area, right? I mean, it's it's just a better strategy. Uh, you know, yeah. than, than messing with biochemistry inside of you, just stop it from getting to you. So, anyway. I mean, the best thing to do is to wear a hat, right? <laughs> to wear actual clothing that protects you from the sun. Um, because even sunscreens themselves have come under fire recently. You know, people say, well, European sunscreens are better. They have better ingredients. They protect you um, in a better way. The FDA is slow on approving uh, uh, some of the contents of sunscreens. And, and of course, this whole SPF idea is completely blown out of proportion. It is not true that if you have an SPF of 100, you know, you can go out and sit in the sun as long as you want. Um, so there are things to worry about. Um, but, but uh, you know, the the... the Bottom line is that don't rely on a pill. Right. So when you're on the beach this summer, that's not what you should be drinking. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So uh, let's go on uh, to another topic. This is one that I flag. So we all know about the 1%, the extraordinarily rich people in America who control a very large proportion of total wealth in comparison to their very small numbers. Okay, what's surprising is that a new study in PLOS One by John Ioannidis and two colleagues showed that in science, there is a very similar phenomenon at work. It's not about money, but it's about influence. So what Ioannidis and his colleagues did is they looked at this database called Scopus, which is just this gigantic, you know, repository of scientific published papers containing articles from over 20,000 academic journals. They looked at a 16-year period from 96 to 2011. And they found, this is the first number you need to know, they found 15.1 million scientists had published at least one article, okay? So science is a big, big thing, right? But then they found that of those 15.1 million, only 150,000, which is just under 1%, had published one paper every year in those 16 years, at least one paper. Okay, so then they, they're like, okay, these scientists are really productive. So let's, let's study them a little more. So they analyzed these high publishers closely. They found that their influence was vastly greater than that of the other scientists. These people um, had not only much higher citation rates, they were involved in some way in 41% of all the, all the articles published. And then they found that of the most influential articles pretty much ever, Okay, so there were 3,190 papers that have been cited over a thousand times. That's like the scientific holy grail. These authors were responsible for 87% of them. So basically, this shows that there's this intellectual aristocracy in science. There are these 150,000 people who are way more influential than everybody else. What do you make of that? 
You know, to be honest, I mean, the extent of it surprises me, but the, mm-hmm. the fact of it does not surprise me because, okay. you know, certainly there are these big principal investigators that monopolize a lot of the grant money and anything coming out of their labs, you know, they have sometimes they have 10 postdocs and an army of graduate students. I mean, their names get put on every single paper and... You know, they just as an anchor author because they provided the funding. And that's always something that I've, I've, you know, and of course, in different subfields, the way that authorship is divided is different, right? So in, in psychology, for example, you know, you really do have to make uh, an intellectual contribution for the most part. Um, although you could argue that there's some psych papers out there that which there's no intellectual contribution. But okay, any, well. <laughs> as a psychologist, I can say that. Uh-huh, um, yes. <laughs> but in any case, in medicine, for example, though, you know, often you, you have a lot of techs and people who are or who just provided some patients um, that don't necessarily make an intellectual contribution that still get their names on the paper. So so there's there's that aspect of it. Um, but, you know, I also I was what I was surprised by is that you only need to essentially publish one paper a year uh, to get into the top one percent, which is, is kind of surprising to me. Um, that's not a huge bar. I mean, it's one that I think 2014 is gonna be the first year probably in which I don't have a publication. But ever since I graduated in 2006, I've had at least one publication. Um, so what is the what are the rest of the 15 or 14 and a half million yeah. people <laughs> doing? Um, so anyway, those are the two sides. Well, you do you do have to wonder. Every scientist I interview has seemed like they have a paper every year because you just look at their webpage and they're all publishing a lot. Yeah, but I guess that the question is then, you know, who are these, these, um, what is it? The 3,190 people. Oh, no, those are the papers, sorry. Papers. Those are the most influential papers. papers. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But 150,000 scientists seems like a lot in the world who, who, are, who are influential. But it does um, maybe start to put into question, you know, is there a barrier to entry for people who are, you know, who don't get these big grants? You know, is it possible for those people to publish in, in this kind of way? And, and, you know, I think the jury's out there. Yeah, it, I mean, I think that's the subtext is that it's, it implies... But I, it's harder to evaluate than the 1% of wealth, but it implies that there's got to be s- some kind of advantage uh, in the system, or it makes you think that there might be. And we we just heard about the, you know, the scientists in biomedical science in particular who get lots of grants. I mean, that's clearly an advantage. Yeah, exactly. And some feels just, just the, the person who's funding the money always gets the anchor spot in the authorship train. Um, but, you know, the other thing, too, is 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 whether or not the way that publications are, are, um, is changing, right? So you can actually buy a spot in a journal. Uh, there are journals who are open access, but you have to pay in order to publish in those. So on the one hand, you know, it's supposed to be open access. Anybody can read them. On the other hand, you're really putting up a barrier for people who don't have a lot of funding in order to publish. Uh, so I think that's going to be the other side of it is, it, is that, that these, in some ways, these open access journals are going to make it more likely that people who have a lot of funding, who are monopolizing the grant money, um, are just going to publish more. Okay, well, I think this is something we need to we need to monitor because this is happening at a time when the total number of scientists is increasing around the world. So every country knows it needs science. So we really have to pay attention to what might be inequalities 
Still, system. didn't they get the post-apocalypse memo? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's just right. no well, that's jobs another, anyway. <laughs> right, that's another factor that we didn't even that we didn't even touch on. But so this is this is something to watch, and it's a fascinating study dealing with some really big numbers that tell a really interesting story. Uh, so with that, let's take a short break, and we will be back with my interview with Naomi Oreskes. So as many of our listeners already know, here at Inquiring Minds, we are big fans of the great courses. And that's not only because I actually have one course that's uh, been released with them. (laughs) That helps. That makes me a fan. Um, But also because they've been been in production for for two decades and they offer a huge range of engaging lectures by really great professors. And so we've been enjoying listening to several of them because we've been able to talk about them on the show. And we recently have been listening to one called Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills by Dr. Stephen Novella. He is a prior podcast guest. And, you know, I really just love listening to him lecture. I love how he systematically slices and dices an issue, a concept. I was just listening to the denialism lecture, and I really love the combination of of categorizing all the fallacies, but also carefully explaining um, why, you know, a little skepticism is okay, but if you're going to constantly move the goalposts and never accept something established, it isn't. He's He's really thought it through carefully in a way that I appreciate a great deal. So for a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. So you can order Your Deceptive Mind by Dr. Stephen Novella and get 80% off the original price. But this savings is only available for a limited time. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Naomi Oreskes, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. And uh, fresh off of your uh, big hit book, Merchants of Doubt, which you wrote with Eric Conway, you are back with a shorter book, which is a work of science fiction. This is something of a surprise. (laughs) And it's called The Collapse of Western Civilization. So you're not holding anything back with the title. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, well, tell us a little bit about this work of sci-fi. You've got a future historian writing from China about why we basically shot ourselves in the foot or even a worse place uh, on global warming. So t- tell exactly. us a little bit about the premise. Well, we didn't set out to write science fiction. And I have to say it came as a surprise to me, too, although maybe not as much to Eric since he's a big sci fiction science fiction fan. But mainly it came out of a conversation that Eric and I were having where we felt like in writing Merchants of Doubt, we had plowed through thousands and thousands of pages of scientific reports, scientific articles, peer-reviewed, you know, peer-reviewed journal articles. And we felt like we really understood the science, but we also felt that the scientific community had really not explained why any of this mattered. And we just kept coming back to this idea of how do we, how do we really talk about why this matters and not just for polar bears and not just for people, you know, living in far flung places or far into the future, but, but what's really at stake and not just what's at stake in terms of the physical environment or biodiversity, but what's at stake in terms of our cultural and political institutions. Because that was the other big question that we felt was sort of still in the air when we finished Merchants of Doubt. We felt there was this huge irony in that story that the people we were studying rejected climate science because they rejected its implications. They feared that if we accepted the reality of climate change, like the reality of the harms of smoking or acid rain or the ozone hole, that it would become an excuse for massive government intervention in the marketplace. They believed very strongly in the importance of 
free market capitalism. They believed in the link between political democracy and capitalism. And because of that, they denied the reality of climate change, the reality of climate science, because they were afraid of what it meant for our political and economic institutions if it were true. So they rejected the truth. But of course, it's that's a very... It's a stupid thing to do, right? Because the reality is you don't get what you want by denying the realities around you. You get what you want by working with the realities. So it was kind of an illogical thing for them to do. But it was also ironic because we felt really strongly that if we don't act on climate change, that the very sorts of heavy-handed interventions that they didn't want would actually become more likely. They would become more likely because if we start seeing a lot of natural disasters, you know, we saw this with Hurricane Katrina. You wrote about this yourself, Chris. I mean, when does the government call in the National Guard? When does the government declare martial law? When does the federal government usurp the prerogatives of the states and local governance? The answer is during natural disasters. So if climate change leads to an environment where we start to see more natural disasters happening at greater frequency, we can expect the federal government's role to get bigger, not smaller. And so it was that irony, that paradox that we really wanted to bring out to to really argue what's at stake here is not just the physical environment, but our political environment and our way of life. Mm-hmm. Well, so according to this future historian who whose story you were telling or who was doing the analysis, this person seems like they're writing almost 400 years from now. Uh, they say we are living in what is called the penumbral age in this present moment. And I looked it up. Penumbra is a part of a shadow, but it's the part of the shadow in which only some of the light is obscured, but maybe things are starting to get darker. So why does that describe the moment we're living in? Well, because we wanted to convey the idea that we actually have a lot of information, that science is shedding light on a lot of questions about the natural world and how it operates, but yet there's the shadow that's falling across it, a shadow of denial, a shadow of disinformation of people denying the evidence, denying the the light that science, in fact, throws on our natural world. And you, the, this historian also says that this penumbral period, again, retrospective historical analysis, started in the year 1988. And I guess for those of us who are insiders on climate change, that's the year James Hansen testified before Congress that climate change was here caused by exactly. humans. So basically, is that the reason you picked that moment? Yes, exactly. And and as you probably detect, there are many things in the book that, you know, there are dates, there are many dates that are chosen very deliberately for people who know this history. So that's exactly right. So 1988 is the first year when a scientist, Jim Hansen, says, we have evidence that the climate is changing and it's being driven by human activities. So that's a very important year. Historically, it's also the year that the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is created. And it's the very next year, 1989, that one of the first disinformation reports that we talked about in Merchants of Doubt um, gets issued. So at the very moment that scientists are, are getting a handle on this and saying, oh my goodness, look what we, we've seen, look what we've found, we also see the disinformation and denial um, campaigns kicking in. And so that's why the historian in retrospect looks at that year as a kind of crucial moment in this history. Mm-hmm. And so now let's go into the, f- the future that for this historian is still the past. I'm struck by the fact that, you know, the the word collapse is in your title, but it turns out that the collapse that's being talked about is not the collapse of Western civilization at first. It's the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, but then people use them simultaneously, if I'm understanding exactly. the book right, because exactly. one collapse is the other collapse. Exactly. And that was deliberate as well, right? So we were trying to sort of play on this 
two different senses of collapse because scientists, of course, as you know, talk a lot and have been talking for a long time about this threat of the risk of a collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet. And that's a very old concern. I've done historical research on Roger Revell. Revell was concerned, you know, a long time ago, going back into the 80s and even the 1970s about the idea that climate change, actually even going back further, even to the 50s, that climate change would affect the ice sheets and cause massive sea level rise. Um, and as you know, it's been a big source of discussion in the scientific community about how serious that threat is and a lot of disagreement within the IPCC about this issue. So we were thinking about a kind of worst case scenario where scientists' worst fears come true, worst fears but not made up fears where the West Antarctic ice sheet does collapse, causing massive, rapid sea level rise, which then puts into effect a kind of chain of events, which ultimately leads to the collapse of political and cultural institutions as well. Mm -hmm. So in the course of this, I note that there's also a, a geoengineering experiment that, that totally fails. Um, so I guess that's, right. <laughs> that's also uh, one of the things that you have to wonder about whether it's in our future. Um, you have them starting and stopping again in the experiment. Right. Well, so the, the, the thing about this book, the important thing to understand, in a way it's a work of fiction, but in a way it isn't. Everything that happens in the book up till 2013 is true. And everything that happens beyond 2013 is based on drawing out certain consequences of things that are actually already in the scientific literature today. So as you know, there are people who have been advocating um, aerosol injection to what people call solar radiation management to try to decrease the incoming solar radiation as a way to compensate for the increased warming caused by greenhouse gases. And as you know, that's a pretty controversial um Proposal, and it's controversial for a lot of reasons, but a lot of the public discussion has hinged on what we could call the non-scientific aspects, the questions about governance, who should be in charge, who would decide, if you did it, who would pay for it, what if it goes wrong, who's responsible, so what we could call kind of the legal and political dimensions. But there's a really important scientific dimension to it as well, which very few people know about, and this is that we have scientific evidence that if we were to inject large quantities of particles into the atmosphere, it could affect the monsoon, the Indian monsoon. And the reason for this is that if you block solar radiation, one of the things that can happen is you can actually decrease the amount of evaporation off of the oceans. So you can actually affect the amount of precipitation that occurs in the world. And we know this because this actually happened after Mount Pinatubo. So you can think of Mount Pinatubo as a kind of natural geoengineering experiment in which a lot of dust was ejected into the stratosphere. There was a decrease in solar radiation following Mount Pinatubo, and that decrease was associated with a decrease in evaporation off the Indian Ocean and a decrease in the rainfall associated with the monsoon. So I thought, well, what if that turns out to be right? <laughs> what if that effect is really important? So in the story, scientists begin this experiment, and at first it goes well, and it does, in fact, manage to cool the climate because I think there's a fair likelihood that that could, could work, that part of it. But then this side effect kicks in. And part of the argument we were trying to make is that it's not an unanticipated side effect. We're not making this up. It's actually an anticipated side effect that people brushed aside. And that is actually a really important part of our argument because one of the things that Eric and I both feel strongly if you from our work in history of science and technology, very often when things go badly, 
with science or technology, people will say, oh, no one could have expected that. No one could have predicted that. But actually, if you do the historical research, you find out not only could they have predicted it, but in fact, they did predict it. So in this story, we sort of, we draw that idea out and we say, okay, well, here's something that people have already predicted that could go wrong. And we imagine what happens if it does. Yeah, it seems like they have all been predicted. Um, Katrina was predicted, you know, Sandy was predicted. Well, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, people who are paying attention see that these things could happen, but often they get brushed aside um, by technological optimists or, you know, if you predict an adverse consequence, you get accused of being negative. Um, you get accused of being unpatriotic. You know, you get accused of just wanting money for your own research. So there's a lot of reasons why warnings get brushed aside. And so in the book, we try to point out certain kinds of warnings that we think are, in fact, being brushed aside right now. Mm-hmm. So there's... um. There's some many sad things that then proceed to happen. One of them that I, I swear I have not seen this in the scientific literature, but you probably have. People's people's household pets suffer. Um, <laughs> what what's is that actually? You know, something that's expected to happen. Well, okay, so that's I never di- I didn't actually read that in a scientific journal. That was just kind of a, a logical deduction from my point of view because yeah. lots of pets are heat sensitive and I see how my own dog reacts when it gets really hot. Um so I just thought, well, if we start having, you know, serious heat waves at great frequency, sooner or later it's got to start affecting pets. So that was a little bit of um creative license, but only just. Well, that's that's I mean, the the consequences are are, are sort of massive and horrible and all these plagues and um, mass spread of diseases and things like that. That was just one of the things that rather than bringing up all the awfulness, I was just like, whoa, pets are in here too. So. <laughs> right. Well, it was also because, as you know, I mean, a lot of times people don't notice until it hits home. So I was also thinking about what what could happen that would make Americans, wealthy Americans, not living in Bangladesh, what would make them sit up and take notice? And it seems like there are so many things that have already happened that you – might have thought would have made people sit up and take notice that yet somehow haven't. But I thought, but if people's pets died, surely yeah. they would notice that. Yeah, they would definitely notice that. Uh, so one of the most striking things about the analysis of this future historian is that this future historian is very hard on scientists. <laughs> this future mm, historian yes. says that they basically fiddled while civilization burned. He, and I'm going to give you a quote. This this historian says they got into arcane arguments about the attribution of individual attempts, and they had an almost they were engaged in an almost childlike attempt to demarcate their practices from older explanatory traditions. In other words, religion. And so they were trying to, you know, hold their research to really high standards, which ended up being a problem. Um, Can you explain that a little more? Yeah. So um, thank you for asking about that. A number of people have have picked up on that. So in Merchants of Doubt, I think we were pretty kind to the scientific community. And that was deliberate because we, we, we really felt that Merchants of Doubt was a story about a kind of malfeasance of people who should have known better, who cast doubt on legitimate scientific work and who attack the integrity of good scientists doing their jobs. And so we really wanted to keep the focus of that book on what we saw as the main event, the main story. But one of the questions that came out when we were writing the story, and something that even scientists themselves talked to me about, was, well, what could or should the scientific community have done? And there were scientists who asked me, what did I think they should have done in response to what was going on. Because one of the things we knew was that lots of scientists were aware of what guys like Fred Seitz and Bill Nuremberg were doing, 
but they didn't say anything. You know, they just kind of turned the other cheek. But we didn't want to get into a discussion about that emergence of doubt because we felt like it would be confusing the issue. So we tried to keep the story of merchants of doubt focused on the merchants of doubt. But there was always this issue in the back of our minds about what the scientific community had done to contribute to the problem. So in a way, we felt like we left scienti- we let scientists a little bit off the hook in that book. <laughs> yeah. So we decided we weren't going to let them off the hook this time. And we didn't think that our future historian would either. We thought that our future historian would be thinking about all the different ways, all the different parts that had contributed to the collapse because, I mean, that's really what historians do. Like if you think about historians who write about the collapse of the Roman Empire or the collapse of, you know, the Mayans or the Incans, it's always about trying to understand all of the factors that may have contributed. So we felt we had to say something about scientists. Yeah. And then, and then, so what to say about it? Well, so I have an additional research project, another research project I've been involved with with some colleagues that you may have seen this article we published about erring on the side of least drama. But we we found – so we wrote this paper in which we showed that, in fact, scientists are – there's good evidence that scientists are underestimating the threat. And we did a set of interviews with scientists where we asked them about this. And one of the things that came up over and over and over again in our interviews was scientists saying, well, we don't want to cry wolf. And so we thought, well, that's really interesting because that's one culturally available metaphor to describe the challenge they face – but another culturally available, available metaphor is fiddling while Rome burns. And we thought, why are scientists so worried about crying wolf, but they're not worried about fiddling while Rome burns? And it was that question that led us to think more about the cultural practices of scientists and why scientists are more comfortable with underestimating threats than overestimating them. Mm-hmm. You know, and the historian even brings up uh, you know, it's it's going to be rough for scientists to think that, you know, future historians will say that they had a hand in this. But the historian brings up something that we've actually talked about on previous episodes of the show, the 95% confidence interval, <laughs> um, which is... Um, exactly. You know, I know. I was thinking about that, Krista. You and I have talked about a lot of these issues over the years. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, in effect, you're saying this prevented them from reaching conclusions. Are you referring... Uh, are you alluding to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's processes in particular with, with that? Well, not not necessarily in particular because I think this is much broader than the IPCC. I mean, you talked about it when you did your work on the hurricane attribution question. It comes up in a very big way there. You have evidence to link hurricane intensification to climate change, but you are not persuaded that the statistical signal reaches the level that you think you need to be able to say that it's demonstrated. So I think it comes up there. um, But I think it comes up in all kinds of areas of life. It came up in the debates over smoking. How strong does the epidemiological signal have to be before you say that smoking is dangerous? It comes up in all kinds of health-related research. So I'm not, we're not picking on the IPCC in particular. We're actually trying to draw attention to something that we see as a much larger issue uh, in the scientific community. Right. And, you know, for, for listeners who are not familiar yet with what I'm referring to, didn't hear, hear our show with the mathematician Jordan Ellenberg, what we're talking about here is the idea that basically you have to, you know, you can, you have to be so sure that, you know, only one in 20 times would you be wrong um, before you know you really have a, a strong result. And actually, I saw a climate science paper recently. Uh, it was about changes to hurricanes where they only were, you know, they only would have been wrong one in 10 times. And it wasn't good enough. They actually had it in the paper anyway, but they just... Is that right? Yeah, yeah. they just said yeah. this is a point one. you know, this is not, not a point oh five. 
um, which is what it would affect. That's the way they say it. Right. And there's a lot of science that gets thrown out because it doesn't reach that 0.05 level. And yet when you think about daily life, I mean, if we would only get married because it was only a one in 20 chance, we wouldn't make a mistake. No one would get married. Right? <laughs> you know, that's, that's certainly <laughs> true. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, and yet I'll just I'll just throw this at you. You've got people arguing um, that in the, in an era of big data, in other at least in other aspects of science, I don't know if this is fair to apply it to climate science. But if you're doing a lot of an crunching of data, you can actually um, you're going to get a lot of false um, positives. You know, depending upon how much you're actually analyzing. So that so you could argue that it's not strong enough uh, for certain kinds of analysis. Well, and that could be true. And then you have to have a discussion about which is worse, the false positive or the false negative. And I think that totally depends on context. There are cases where a false positive is really bad, but there are cases where a false negative is really bad. And in medicine, I mean, doctors are quite clear about in screening tests, they want to have false positives, right? Because they'd rather have a false positive and have to do a follow-up than have a false negative, miss a cancer, and the patient dies. So that's a case where people like false positives. So it really just depends on the context. But the scientific community doesn't discuss that very often. They almost never have a conversation about, well, which would be worse in this case? Are we more worried about false positives or are we more worried about false negatives? Because to have that conversation, well, first of all, you have to step back from existing scientific practice and realize that standard practice could be different, right? And then you also have to step back and talk about your values. And that's something that, as we know, the scientific community is very uncomfortable about. Well, I've always felt that this is the most important thing. You know, um, you know the former uh, Bush administration Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson has uh, recently been in the New York Times arguing exactly this point, that, that you do not take a risk like this. <laughs> you know, and it, it, isn't, right. it isn't about how much you know. Uh, you know enough uh, to be pretty sure that you are taking a risk, right? Right. Nobody would jump out of an airplane without a parachute, right? We would all know that unless we were like trying to kill ourselves, right? So, you know, there's risks and risks and where we draw the line and how much information we think we need is a value judgment. And so part of what we were trying to do here is to really just get people talking about that question. And the very fact that you and I are talking about now, I think is a good thing. So the other part of this story that might be controversial certainly will be noted is that this historian is writing in China. Uh, China is sort of, I don't know if it's the hero of this story, but it's the nation that survives the best. Um, and it's the nation that uh, changes the way it gets energy. Uh, and this, uh, you know, what do you mean to, to signify by having that be the case? Right. Well, it's definitely not meant to be the hero. So I hope nobody thinks okay. that. It's meant to be the survivor. And the survivor, the survivor is not necessarily the best or the nicest person, as anybody who watches the TV show knows, right? Yeah. right. <laughs> so... This was based, again, on a conversation that Eric Conway and I had had in which we thought, well, if climate change starts getting really disruptive and governments do have to intervene to deal with natural disasters, crop failure, things like that, are the liberal democracies going to be able to do it? And who's going to be able to cope with the disruption that occurs? And so the argument that we're suggesting here is it could well be the case that the authoritarian nations are actually better situated to deal with climate disruption than the liberal democracies. And we want to suggest that that's a very worrisome thought, that if you care about liberal democracy, you ought to be really getting your derriere in gear to do something about this issue, because the longer we wait, the more likely it is that we do see 
really disruptive climate change, and the more likely it is that countries like China end up the survivors. Right. And it's the, this, I mean, you present this as the great irony, circling back to the free marketeers, the, the, the thing they wanted the least uh, to be the case uh, ends up exactly. being the case. Exactly. So it's basically our call to all of our Republican friends out there to really think about why, if you're a Republican, if you believe, or even if you're a Democrat who believes in the free market, if you're anyone who believes in democracy, you ought to really be concerned about this issue. You know, in a way, what this means is that when you, you know, have the penumbral age, uh, you know, it's a it's a dark age coming. And the last right. dark age we we associate with, um, in effect, fundamentalist religion. We associate it with, you know, basically, um, you know, religion dominating thought. Whether whether that's fair or not, I mean, I think it's complicated. But in a sense, this new dark age is a religious dark age too. It's just a free market religion <laughs> dark age. Exactly, right. exactly. And we always talk, and we, you know, we always talk about that phrase, that amazing phrase, the magic of the marketplace. You know, and I always think it's so amazing. That grown-up, grown-up men in suits and ties talk about the magic of the marketplace. I mean, if a child did it, you would say it's magical thinking, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's this sort of, you know, kind of, well, market fundamentalist, a kind of religious faith in the power of markets, even in the face of tremendous evidence of market failure. And that's, right. again, what one of the things we've been trying to call attention to in our work. And you say that one of the biggest heroes of the market fundamentalist is Hayek. And mm. but he wasn't as extreme as they are, right? He was kind of. It sounds kind of moderate in your description. Absolutely. I mean, if you read von Hayek, which I have to conclude that probably no one on the right wing in America actually has, because they've actually read what he said. There's no way that most of these people could say the things they say. So von Hayek was a very smart man, and he was actually, in many ways, very reasonable. I mean, he drew some somewhat extreme conclusions from his views, and many of his predictions did not come true. But nevertheless, he had an interesting point to make, which was about essentially where do you draw the line? Where do you say that the appropriate level of government intervention sits? And he said, well, let's think about that. There are obviously places where the government not only should but has to intervene in the marketplace. And he has a whole list of them. And we mentioned some of them in the book. So he's not saying that there's no place for government intervention. He's simply saying that because government intervention poses a threat to personal liberty, because it can involve a diminution of liberty, we have to really think through what those interventions should be. But he absolutely thought, and he even mentions pollution as one of the obvious places where intervention is appropriate. So, I, you know, to conclude, reading uh, this book, I found many moments when the historian is writing about things that have already happened in our, in our world, um, where, in effect, the historian is flagging a turning point. Like, at that moment, if they had done something different, it could have been different. There are many turning mm -hmm. points flagged. But then there's this whole past that, that um, is our future, right? I mean, right. It's past right. of the historian. So, I mean, where are the turning points uh, that are still actually ahead of us, or are they all gone now? Oh, well, of course, that's tricky. That's tricky to know. It's easier to see. I mean, I, I thought about this a lot as a historian, right? I mean, right. you're absolutely right. Historians spend a lot of time looking at things in hindsight that we look at and we say, oh, there's a turning point. But often the people at the time who lived through them did not experience them as turning points. They just experienced them as life as usual. So in a way, I was trying to, Eric and I were trying to highlight opportunities, highlight missed opportunities. And in a way, I suppose the point of that was to say, it's not too late. We do still have opportunities, 
But if we continue the way we've been going and we continue to miss these opportunities, there is going to become a point of no return. And again, that's where we go back to West, the West Antarctic. And it was pretty frightening for me and Eric when we read those articles, what was it, about two months ago now, those two recent articles that came out that said that actually the breakup of West Antarctica is underway. Right. I mean, that was really scary to me because even though we wrote about it, I don't know that we actually believed it. <laughs> you know, I think we accepted the scientific viewpoint that this is a worst case scenario. And now it appears that that worst case scenario actually is occurring and we're not sure what the time frame of it is. But I think, you know, one of those articles, I forget which one it was, talked about the 200 to 500 year time frame. And that's a very interesting time frame because 200 years is longer than the planning horizon of most of us who are alive right now. But on the other hand, it's not longer than the horizon over which historians think about human and social forces, right? So something that happens 200 years from now that was known now, historians will in the future will surely say, well, they knew that this was happening. How could they not have done something to stop it? They will surely say it. Um, do you, then this is an interesting question for a historian uh, to ask a historian. How much of their wrath have we already incurred versus the us, you know, if we do nothing in 50 years? <laughs> ah, well, that's a good question. It probably <laughs> depends on what happens to the West Antarctic. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you could say that they, I mean, you could imagine his story in writing, they walked up to the precipice and, and got there, got themselves straight and slapped themselves in the face a little bit and almost jumped and then didn't. Um, and I don't know if, it, and I, and it's hard to look at the world and know which, which trajectory we're on because there's still some things I think that could happen that would, that would really not leave us in quite as bad a world as, as this that's depicted. Absolutely. And if we didn't think that, we wouldn't have written the book. Right. So are you an optimist or are you a pessimist at the end of it? <laughs> People always ask that question. I always say, well, you know, whether you're an optimist, you remember the famous thing about is the glass half empty or half full? Yeah. It depends on whether you're pouring or drinking, right? Okay. So, I mean, I'm an optimist in the sense that I agree with what you just said. I don't think it's too late to stop the worst effects from happening. And I think that is what the scientific community has said. But I think we're also seeing pretty clear signals that it is getting very late, and that we are running out of time and that we really, we've really squandered the past 20 years. And that upsets me a lot because, as I said before, Eric, my co-author, is a historian of technology. 20 years is a lot of time in the history of technology. You can build a lot in 20 years. And if we had started on this in 1988, we would be a good way along towards the solution, I think. So the fact that we didn't do that and we are only now you know, we're still kind of at ground zero. We still haven't really acted. We still don't even have, you know, a carbon tax or an emissions trading system, even some rudimentary uh, policies that could shift our trajectory. Um, it's worrisome. I think it is worrisome. I don't think it's too late. As I said, if I thought it was too late, I wouldn't have written the book. I would have just bought real estate at high elevation. But <laughs> um, but I am I am worried. Well, you know, I think that it's a it's a really thoughtful book. It's you know, it's easy to read, um, and you know, I think it it will make people really question a lot about where we are in the present moment, and they should. So, uh, Naomi, thank you. we hope so. Yeah, thank you for for being with us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's always great talking to you, Chris. So what I thought was one of the most interesting parts of the interview is how, you know, she talks about the fact that she blames scientists in part 
uh, for this impending collapse. And I, and I think she's exactly right. I think scientists are often far too conservative in terms of the claims they make. We're, we're way too scared about being wrong. We think that if someone says, someone shows that we're wrong, you know, our career is going to go down the tubes. Um, and I think for one thing, first of all, that's just not true. Um, for another thing, it doesn't really reflect the way science works behind closed doors. I mean, we all go to go to conferences and we hashed it out with each other. And oftentimes we are wrong and, and that leads to a different experiment and a better finding. So why we don't then bring this kind of the same attitude out overtly when we talk about science to the media, you know, I understand, you know, people shy away from the media because the media seems to overinterpret and, you know, your moment in the sun is often very, very fleeting. So you want to make sure you get it right. But I think she's right in saying that there, there is a fault here in the scientists who are not standing up and saying, look, there is incontrovertible evidence that we are going down this path. Yeah, especially because with some of the issues she's talking about, I mean, she brought up hurricanes, for instance, you know, and it's, it's a case where, you know, you, you, you have one year of data, then another year of data, then another year of data, and you go back about 30 years, and then the data is just awful, right? <laughs> right. Um, and so to be able to make these statistically powerful claims just becomes very hard with the limited data, and yet you know that there's something going on, right? Right. So, you know, it's, it's in that context where you have to, where you have to think about um, whether the rules, the 95% confidence interval, is, you know, the right rule to apply. Yeah, and I also think that in some ways, scientists have to learn to talk about their findings in a way that is more in line with the conversation that the, the rest of the nation has, which is, you know, that, that some people you know, pe- people interpret confidence in different ways. Um, like scientists, in order to be 100% confident about something, almost will never get there, right? They'll always leave some role for uncertainty because that's how we are taught to think that science, you know, continues to rewrite itself. But that doesn't mean it's not the same thing as saying, well, we don't know, or we're not sure or whatever. It really is saying, look, we're 99.999% confident. But when new evidence comes out, that's going to change our our opinion. You know, we will also incorporate that, which in some ways is a stronger position than saying, I'm 100% right. And no matter what you say, I'm not going to change my mind. Yeah. It's just so bracing, again, to think of a historian 400 years from now who says, yeah, the scientists had this thing where they would never say they're sure about something. And that's because, you know, they were coming out of a period when religion dominated and they wanted to make sure everyone knew they were different. For 400 years from now, they might actually say that. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's true. An interesting thought experiment. So that's it for another episode of Inquiring Minds. And I want to thank you all for joining us. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. You can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, short stories, science fiction, anything else you'd like uh, to Inquiring Minds at climatedesk.org. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing you the world's greatest professors right to your fingertips with over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more. The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. They've also got an app, by the way. I listen to it walking to work, you know, right on my iPhone. Um, Best of all, you can listen to them at your own pace. No pressure, no homework, no exams. And now, for limited time only... The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of these courses, one we've discussed a lot already on the show, Your Deceptive Mind by Professor Stephen Novella. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. 
Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. And I just want to put a shout out to one of our listeners who, in addition to sending us a nice card, also sent us a check. So thank oh, you very yes, much thank for you, that. Thank you so much. We feel very, very appreciated. And we're glad we have people listening to us. We'll put it to so, good use. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.